This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ali Tikkanen. Okay, welcome back everyone. In the first part, we were discussing about the evolution of physical activity recommendations in behavioral medicine or how it has been in 40 years prior and what are the challenges. And now we are discussing about the method. Professor Salis, your lab has been instrumental in developing various measures from questionnaires to accelerometer guidelines. Could you walk us through the process of creating reliable and valid measures? And how do you see this developing new measures? You have been working in the field more than 40 years. Maybe you can give a little bit of historical perspective at the same time. Yes. I never considered myself a measurement expert, but in psychology, there are many measurement challenges. So We get pretty well trained in developing and evaluating measures. I've used that training throughout my career. And the reason I started developing measures is that I happened to be one of the first behavioral scientists to study physical activity. And if you're going to study something, you have to measure. So I was interested in studying how psychosocial variables are related to physical activity. And that's what we do as psychologists. And at the time I was starting this, some of the more promising variables were self-efficacy or your confidence that you can do different types of, of physical activity in certain situations and also social support of how much do people like your family or friends or coworkers encourage you or assist you to be active. And these topics were common in health psychology applied to other areas, but they had not been applied to physical activity. So I said, we're going to study them in relation to physical activity. We need to develop the measures. So when I first came to San Diego, I recruited a couple of master's students to help me to work with me in developing these measures. And so we looked at the literature and how are these measures conceptualized? What are ways that people word questions, that sort of thing. And then we went from that of what kind of social support would be really helpful and what aspects of physical activity are we interested in about how people might be confident, what might affect their confidence. And so we might want items about that. So the first thing that we did is we basically did interviews with people and we were working with adults at the time and we just would have convenient sample of people and we'd ask them how could how do people could people or do people help you do physical activity or how did they get in your way and fail to give support or encourage you not to be active and so we asked different ways of what affects your confidence of being active Would you be confident if the weather was bad or if you had a lot of work to do or you had family demands? And so we basically had people generate 
the items for us instead of us as researchers saying, oh, we know everything. We can come up with the items. No, we said we need to have the items come from people. So we did that, then we developed the items, and then I believe that we did reliability and validity studies with college students because we didn't have any funding to, to do bigger studies. So we recruited college students through psychology classes and did test retest reliabilities and evaluated construct validity by relating those questionnaires to self-report measures of physical activity, leisure time physical activity. So those were about, I think, the first two measures that I developed specific to physical activity. And we published those in the mid-80s. And I still, every month, I probably get a request. Can I use that measure? And of course, they're free to use and we, they can use, get them from my website and they don't need permission, but I, they still ask permission. So I tell, and they're quite well cited because people have been using them for 40 years. And so I encourage new researchers to develop measures. Because again, if you're going to study new things, if you're going to advance the field and study new concepts in relation to physical activity, you need to measure them. So you should uh, go through a formal measurement development process and evaluate them and make sure they're good. So that's how I started. And as we got into studying the environment, there were not good measures of the environment certainly by, by self-report. So we went through a similar process. And I talked, for that, I talked to experts of people who were advocating for more walkable communities and also city planners and people working in transportation in fields that uh, basically they work on the environment. They study the environment. They change the environment. That's what they're trained in. I was trained in none of that. So I tapped into their expertise. So from the beginning, that was an interdisciplinary work. And other people across the world develop similar measures. But And so there's quite a few of these walkability scales or built environment scales or neighborhood environment measures. And they've really worked pretty well for us across many years. And we developed, people have talked about walkability and have measures of that using geographic information systems. So we started working with Larry Frank, who's a city planner and transportation planner, also has GIS skills. And together we looked at the literature and abstracted what are the key variables that you can find GIS data on. And then we created an index and validated that. And People are using variations of that now. And really having these measures and others developing similar measures allowed the field of built environment and physical activity to come into being. Because if we couldn't, didn't have good measures of, of the built environments, you couldn't study it. And so these measures that we developed, we did that specifically to laid the foundation for a grant proposal. And so having these measures gave the reviewers confidence of, okay, we have hypotheses, we have 
a rationale. We are able to measure the variables that we want to study. I think that was necessary for us mm-hmm. getting the first grant from the National Institutes of Health to study built environments and physical activity. So the measures are essential. You can't do science without good measures. It's a very simple concept. And so as the science moves forward, you need new measures. And I've always tried to keep the, my science advancing. So we kept coming up with new new ideas and new topics that we thought were important and promising. So we've just continued to build more measures. And I think it's been very useful to, as you mentioned, use a variety of measurement modes, self-reports, direct observation. We've done a lot in direct observation. We've been using GIS. And our teams were some of the first to use the very early earliest accelerometers at some scale, using them with hundreds, if not thousands of people. So I'm a big fan of using whatever technologies are available to get the the best measures. And you said that the earliest accelerometers, was there anyone else using them for physical activity or did you come up with the idea from some other field? How did it go? No, it was a commercial product. It was an accelerometer, but an early version of it. it was called the Caltrack. And it was about this big, much bigger than the, the accelerometers we use these days. And it was had, this was in the late 80s. And it had very minimal software. So it did not give you minute by minute readings. It only gave you a cumulative reading Mm, like pedometers do. So it was very limited, but at least it was objective. And so we used this in our FARC physical education study. We were interested in, we could observe at school how active children were in physical education, but we didn't know how active they were after school. So we uh, used these Caltracks and we had hundreds of them. And that was, I think, one of the first big uses of an accelerometer. But when the more advanced accelerometers came out with where you could get minute by minute or second by second, then we moved to that because with the, when you only have a cumulative score, if that score is very low, you don't know whether that child was a couch potato or they just didn't wear the accelerometer. So that's a big problem for interpretation. Yeah, yeah, I can easily see that. For most sedentary behavior and physical activity researchers, collecting the research data is one of the most frustrating steps of a project, especially as inefficient data collection steals too much of your precious time, causes unnecessary stress and hassle, and can easily derail progress of your project. This is why we devised a revolutionary new way to collect data. Introducing Fibian Sense Motion, the beginning of a new era. Fibian Sense Motion is a cutting edge next generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data, 
a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device and a cloud service for managing the data. Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw 3-axis accelerometer data. Don't compromise on the quality of your research or the project timeframes. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.fibian.com. That is s-e-n-s.fibian.com. Fibian, created by researchers for researchers. And when you were discussing about measures, self-report and questionnaires, I figure out that I don't actually know much about the validation process of these. What, what are the challenges if you have a difficult measures? For example, like you have a measure, a questionnaire about confidence. How do you validate or the built environment features? How, how do you validate? How do you find the criterion measure to validate against? Typically, with self-reports, there are several types of validity. The most commonly used is construct validity. So we were interested in, let's say, self-efficacy because we thought it would be highly correlated with physical activity. So that's our hypothesis. Hmm. So there's no way to, and we found, yeah, it is highly correlated with physical activity. So we said, all right, that's construct validity. The Another type is criterion validity. And that's where your measure is related to a, let's say, gold standard measure. And with self-efficacy, it's a report, it's a perception. So there is no gold standard. So you can't really do that. So we've really relied on construct validity for, certainly for surveys. <clears throat> on direct observations, sometimes you can have a construct you can have construct validity. Are the reports of your environments related to the physical activity? So that's, again, construct validity. But with built environments, you can also have more objective measures. So you can have GIS measures of population density or types of housing or the connectivity of the road network or are there sidewalks or are there crosswalks, that sort of thing. So for those type, or how far do you live from the nearest grocery store? You can get um, more objective measures of those. Although the GIS measures also are not gold standard. They are not mm. foolproof because the data can be old or they can be wrong or incomplete. But we still, we have several studies where our self-report measures of built environments have been related to GIS measures of built environments. And so those have been published. So there's different ways of doing this. Yeah. And how do you see, like, there's probably some people listening now and they are not expert doing these measures about the validations, but they want to use them. How do they judge that? Is this valid enough for them? What would be your kind of rule of thumb to check the validation of a measure? And then how much you can generalize if it's been validated with college students and you have elderly living in a care home or something. What would be your kind of rules of thumbs for researchers that how do they 
estimate these things? Yep. The first thing I would say, if you're asking questions about how do I validate measures, is to recruit a collaborator who has expertise in measure. That's my first rule for success in research is good collaborations with people in, with the correct expertise. For construct validity, typically what you're looking for, let's just simplify and say you're looking for a correlation that's significant. And so significance may be a, a weak criterion or a low bar for success, but it's a starting place. And of course, the higher the correlation, the better. The thing with physical activity is for most, any kind of measure, any kind of construct that you think or variable that you think is related to physical activity or is influencing, it's not going to correlate at 0.9. And that's because there are many influences on physical activity. And so that's why, in one reason, we've developed a lot of measures, because there are many influences, psychological, social, environmental policy. So they're competing for influence. So a self-report or any measure is probably not going to correlate very highly. And so a physiologist would say, all right, my self-report measure correlates 0.3 with physical activity. That's a weak correlation, so I'm going to reject that. See, that would probably be wrong because they're used to biological constructs correlating very highly. So there's different rules that apply. For, for criterion validity, again, let's say for a self-report of built environment and a GIS measure, again, the low bar would be a significant correlation. And then you, and as you use the measure and you learn more about it, or you gather more collaborators with different expertise, you may be able to improve on that measure. And then you can try to validate it again and see if the validity correlations are higher. About the generalizability, that's something, if you can start out with a fairly diverse population, maybe that's not just university students that would be a good start. So you try to get some kind of population sample. Representative is probably too difficult for a psychometric study where you're just validating a measure. But so you try it on a diverse population and then you see how it works. But usually we don't have representative or even highly diverse samples. So we start with a convenient sample. And if it works there and somebody wants to try it, in a specific population group, like low income or another country, then it's a good idea and certainly recommended to do at least a small measurement study in that population to see if it works. And two things I would say as tips. One is to, before you do a formal validation, reliability or validity study, pre-test your measure with a handful of people a one-on-one -on -one and have them take the measure, a self-report measure, and tell you as they're taking it what they don't understand or if we're using words that are not clear or how we could make that question clearer so that you try to get the right terminology that's a, a appropriate wording for the population. So again, getting feedback 
from users instead of assuming as researchers we know it all. And so once you've done the pretest, we usually do a reliability study where test retest reliability, people take the same measure, maybe two weeks apart, and you don't need a large study for that. 40 to 50 people is enough to get an idea of reliability. And the reliability should be high. So if you're giving the measure two weeks apart, for most measures, it should be high, hopefully 0.7 or above. They don't all work like that. And maybe you don't expect all self-report items to work like that, but you should be able to get pretty high correlations as test-retest reliability. And then items that are just not reliable, you throw them out or you reword them and you try them again. So that's a screening method. And then, and then you can use it in your main study and see what you get and go from there. But again, when people translate our measures or other measures we say, and adapt them and for different countries or different populations, you probably need to adapt. And we have some guidelines on my website about how to do those adaptations. And they start with getting feedback from the population that you're going to use the measure with in the setting that you're going to use the measure. Uh, so that's a, kind of a constant theme. But my approach to adaptation is, so to take the original measure and hopefully use that whole measure so that you can compare your results to other people using that same original measure. But then the adaptation is hopefully to one, to use appropriate wording for the same concept. That, that's very important. But then if there are things uh, about the population that you intend to study that are different um, or the country, the built environment is different, then add on items to measure those different variables to the original survey. So then you've got the best of both worlds. You've got a comparable measure for how it's been used in previous studies, and you've got a measure that's adapted to your setting and your purposes. Yeah, sounds interesting and important. And you earlier said that we need to, researchers need to develop more measures. Do you see that some measures that we are clearly missing, that there's some advances in the field, but we haven't developed the measures to measure those things? Do you see or... Do you foresee that what kind of things we need in future? Here's an area, I'll give you an example of an area that's constantly changing. And so it's complementary to physical activity, but it's about sedentary behavior. And because the industries are continually innovating new ways to be sedentary. And so if you're studying sedentary behavior and you want to go beyond just what's the total time sitting to understand how are people using their sedentary time, then you need to be constantly inventing new measures. We used to ask for sedentary time, how much TV do you watch? And then we would ask, how much time do you spend in vehicles? Because those are two major sitting times. But then when computer games came along, we had to ask about that. And then when, well, computers came, became more, became ubiquitous, we had to ask about that. 
And so then we wanted to ask about computer use for work time and computer use for leisure time. And now we're finding people, especially kids, are spending so much time on social media. How are they using that? And because we're seeing that's related to sedentary time. The more they mm-hmm. use social media, the more sedentary. Although they could walk around using social media. That's probably not a good idea. So one of the other things we're finding is, so there's a sedentary, that whole cluster of things, it keeps changing. And the other thing we see is when I first saw an e-scooter in my neighborhood, I said, here's a new enemy of physical activity. We need to study this. And so, of course, there were no surveys that asked about e-scooters because there hadn't been any e-scooters. So now we have to ask about that. And are they around? And do you use them? And how do you use them? to replace car trips or just for fun. And there's not just e-scooters, there's the one-wheeled things they call unicycle or unascooter or something. And so it's constantly evolving new ways of trying to engineer activity out of people's lives or attract them not to walk, but to use this technology, I think are big changes in our electronic world and in our communities, and we need to be monitoring them. Yeah, really good points. And when you said the uni scooter or whatever it is, we don't even have a name. So if we do a messer, it probably changes the name in two years and we need to think again the name again. At least in those you are standing, so you are not sitting as much. It's pretty passive anyway. Yeah, very good points about sedentary behavior. And if you got interested in measuring context of sedentary behavior or physical activity, we have good news for you. Vibion platform provides convenient way to collect contextual information. It includes a cloud platform and easy-to-use mobile app for both Android and iOS. It has shown its capabilities in several large EU projects and is now available globally. Our product expert, Dr. Miriam Caprita, is glad to have a chat to see if our platform could help you make better research with less hassle. So feel free to book a quick video call with Miriam from the link in the episode description. Thanks for listening and have a great day.